Welcome to the Heart of a Man podcast. We are a movement of men pursuing faith, character, personal growth, and meaningful friendships. If you'd like to learn more about us and our mission to rebuild the American family one man at a time, please visit us at heartofaman.org. We hope you enjoy this lesson from our series called Genesis, Why Is It This Way? Good evening, guys. Uh, Great to see everybody. My name is Scott Pothoven. A number of you guys who have been through this before, I've been up here a couple times before, uh, so it's good to see you guys. If you're new, this is the first time I've been up here. Uh, I've been with Heart of a Man since we started, um, and I'm going to tell a little bit of story tonight um, that will tell you that I've known Bill for a long time as well. So so let's jump into uh, the lesson tonight. So October 2011. Uh, Bill and I are having breakfast in Grand Rapids, Michigan at a business's mission conference put on by an organization called Partners Worldwide. Uh, Earlier that year, I had left a financial planning business that I'd been a part of for about 15 years. Started that right after I, uh, right after middle school. Uh, No, I'm just kidding. Right after I graduated college. Um, And uh, had, had been doing that for a long time and had gotten to know Bill and their family and Uh, Bill started to do some work in Africa to create jobs and then bring the gospel through that. And he asked me if I would come join him in that. And so at the time that we're having this breakfast, I'd been to Africa twice. Uh, Bill had been there three times. And uh, we're talking about just the work, the opportunities, some of the things that were going on. And and I can still see it. I can still see the table that we were sitting at. And uh, we said, you know, to make this work, uh, one of us probably has to move to Africa. And uh, Bill had a family. Uh, he had a business. He had two wild stallion boys that were just causing all sorts of problems. Uh, so he wasn't going to leave. Uh, I was single. Um, I had some family, obviously, and, and friends, and a comfortable life. And that was the only things that were keeping me from going. Uh, fast forward a couple years, our, um, the business, the stuff that we did in Africa, um, never really got going and never got traction. And uh, so here we are 11 and a half years later. And uh, neither Bill or I never moved to Africa. Um, And after a few years, as I said, things just didn't work out the way we were hoping. We made some great relationships. We had some progress. I think guys got to know the gospel for sure. Some pretty cool stories. But there's a part of me that's always wondered in the back of my mind, you know, what if? What if? What if I would have been willing uh, to make a big commitment and to move to Africa? Um, We made 13 trips together. Uh, Bill made a couple more after I left Packmore. Um, But I wonder what if I would have, what if I would have made that commitment and gone to Africa? And I don't know for for sure what would have happened, right? Um, But I know this. um, As I thought about that particular moment and preparing for this lecture tonight, because there's always been that part of me that's wondered what would have happened. Uh, I don't know exactly if we would have fulfilled our mission. We had a vision of fulfilling 10,000 jobs in Africa. And um, I don't know if that would have happened or not. Uh, But I certainly don't know what my life would look like. But there's a small voice that says, what could God have done? What could God have done if I would have been fully committed? So as we look at these chapters of Genesis tonight, we see the impact that we can have when we live a life fully committed to God. I hope each one of us will leave here with a renewed focus tonight and a dedication to using the one life that we are given to remain fully committed 
to the assignment and the calling that God has given us. So will you pray with me? Father God, I thank you for these men, and I thank you for tonight, and I thank you for the opportunity to be here to study your word. Lord, it's so convicting, so powerful. Uh, just these couple chapters that we look at tonight, there's so many things that we could take from here, Lord. Lord, the one thing, though, I just, I just pray that we can answer the, the, the assignment, the call that you put on our hearts. I pray that we would remain committed, that we would have the courage and the strength to follow you. And so, Lord, just pray for your Holy Spirit. I pray for your spirit just to work through me, just get me out of the way, Lord. And uh, I pray that these guys could hear something that would just help them in their pursuit of you. I'm so thankful for that here, they're here tonight, Lord. Um, we love you so much, God. We thank you for everything you give us. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You know, as I prepared tonight, guys, I, I struggled. I really did. I struggled with what to say because, as I said just in that prayer, there's so many things we could talk about in these chapters. You start to study this stuff, and these great pastors have written like sermons, like, you know, three verses at a time. There's like 20 sermons on the two chapters that we're trying to study tonight, right? So, as I thought about that, you know, I also thought this isn't a theology class, guys. This isn't a sermon, these are talks that we do. And so it's not a theology class. So if any of you guys are sitting here saying, great, I'm going to find out who the sons of, of God are in chapter six, I'm going to disappoint you. I'm not going to talk to you about it, right? In part because, honestly, that's been de debated for hundreds, probably thousands of years. And there's still no agreement on what it is. And even if we were going to talk about that tonight, or I was going to give you my you know, interpretation, I'm not sure that I know how that helps you live differently tomorrow. You know, I, I like the question that we had in our lesson because I think there is an element of this like intermarriage thing. And I think we need to be aware of that. Um, but, but that's found in other places of scripture as well. And if, if you don't wanna see scripture, here's a statistic for you guys. For any of you guys who are single, uh, for dads who have uh, kids that are dating, uh, the rate of divorce in inter-religious um, in inter, uh, marriages is twice as high as what it is in just regular marriages, right? Interfaith mar uh, marriages end up in twice the rate of divorce as regular evangelical marriages. So take that as a note, all right? That, that's an application you can take out of there. But otherwise, the sons of God thing is not going to get us anywhere. So instead, I want to look at a couple big picture concepts in hopes of encouraging all of us to be inspired, more focused, and more prepared to live on mission for Jesus, because that's what I think he wants out of us tomorrow. So the first thing I want to look at tonight is a phrase that kept getting my attention the first several times I read chapter five. This phrase occurs eight times in chapter five. And in my mind, when something gets repeated eight times, we should probably pay attention to it. The hard part is we don't like this phrase. Uh, we don't want to think about this phrase. We're scared of this phrase. And if you haven't figured it out yet, the phrase that I'm talking about is, and he died. As we go through this genealogy of Adam and Noah, we're told some repeating facts. We're, talked, we're told when they, have their first, uh, when they have a child, how long they lived. But with the exception of Enoch, every one of them also ended up with the phrase, and he died. I know we don't like to think about or talk about death very much, but I think that's a tool that the devil uses. He doesn't want us to think about death because that allows us to chase after comfort, success, power, fame, and fortune. When I don't think about my mortality, I feel a lot better about focusing 
on my life here. James E. Smith, an author and an Old Testament scholar, wrote in one of his books, he said, the fool is one who thinks only about the present. He lives for this hour. He shuns places of sadness and death because they contradict his lifestyle. A few weeks ago, I went home to Iowa for a funeral of a dear family friend. Dwayne had been like a second father to me growing up. He and his wife, Donna, were best friends with my mom and dad for 60 years. Last week, I went to a visitation for a client who had lost her mom at the age of 93. I know some of you in here have experienced the death of a loved one or a close friend recently. The thought of death is fresh. It brings hurt, it brings pain, and honestly, it brings fear. But as I went to those two services, I couldn't help but pause and think, that's going to be me someday. One day, and who knows when it will be, I'm gonna be laying there, and whatever opportunity I had to impact the people around me, it's gone. Now, I'm not suggesting we should live under a gray cloud of death every day. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm, I don't think, I'm not saying go home and make death a daily discussion at your dinner table, okay? But I am, however, suggesting that the fact that we are going to die someday should impact how we live today. Ecclesiastes 7.2 says, it is better to go to the house of mourning than the house of feasting. Solomon's one of the wisest and wealthiest men who ever lived. Why would he say it's better to go to the house of mourning than the house of feasting? That doesn't make sense. But it does, because it reminds us that this life is temporal. Whatever pain you are going through, it's temporary. Whatever worldly success you've had, it's temporary. One is not right or wrong, but we must remember this is not our ultimate home. A couple years ago, Pastor Nate here at College Park used this analogy of the world being like a rest area on a long trip. I don't know if any of you remember that or not. It resonated with me. My family lives in Iowa. Jenny's family lives in North Carolina. Six and a half hours to Iowa, nine hours to North Carolina. I love coffee and I love sweet tea. We stop at rest areas. <laughs> when I stop, I don't pull out my tent, put it up, make myself at home, and be like, woo, we've arrived. That's stupid. At a rest area? But isn't that how we live our life here sometimes? Like we've arrived here. We focus more on our career than on our family and our friends. We focus more on saving for retirement than we do on being generous. We focus on how we look rather than thinking about how we make people feel. We care more about what others think than how we are viewed in God's eyes. Jonathan Edwards was a famous American pastor in the 1700s. He resolved, quote, to think much on all occasions of my dying and the, uh, and the common circumstances which attend death. That sounds like something you might hear from someone in their 70s or 80s, right? Jonathan Edwards was 19 years old when he said that, 19. How different would your life look if you had resolved to make thinking about your death a common part of your processing since you were 19? Would you have lived with a different purpose in mind? How would it have changed how you manage your time? 
How about how you treat other people, the words you use, how you interact with people? If you were thinking about this is a short period of time. Here's what I would encourage all of us to do. Just spend some time thinking about your life and the things that you are most focused on in the context of knowing that one day, you too, me too, we will die. Kind of a downer, right? But it's reality. It's a reality, and I hope it's a motivator, guys. That's why I share that. I hope it's a, it convicted me. It motivates me to be thinking about these things. The other thing that really convicted me in these chapters is the commitment and courage of Noah. Consider for a moment the cultural environment that Noah builds this ark in, right? Genesis 6.5 says, The Lord saw how great man's wickedness on the earth had become and that every inclination of the thoughts of his heart was only evil all the time. And then in verse 11, we are told that the earth was corrupt and full of violence. The world was a mess. It was a mess. Train wreck. It was full of sin, outright disobedience to God. And in the midst of this, God calls Noah and he says, build me an ark. I mean, I think when you read through those verses, we don't take time to truly consider what the environment, what the world was that Noah was building this in and the commitment and the resolve and the perseverance the courage that Noah had to have to build this ark. We aren't told exactly how long it took him to build the ark, but no matter how long it took, imagine what Noah went through to build the ark. First of all, there was a physical aspect of building the ark. The ark was 510 feet long. That's one and a half football fields. One and a half football fields. That's how big this thing was. It's estimated that a bigger ship was not built till 1858. 1858, till something was built that was as big as the ark. It's crazy, right? Second, there was an incredible financial cost. We don't know with the financial system and what it looked like, but there was a cost for all this lumber, all this stuff to build the ark. He had an incredible financial sacrifice to build the ark. And then third, think about the scorn and the ridicule, the abuse he must have suffered from the people around him. We all know how criticism and being made fun of makes us feel, right? We all do. It's not fun. And so here's Noah. He's getting made fun of all the time, and yet he endured it for many, many years. I mean, just think about if Twitter had been around back then, what this guy would have gone through, right? I mean, oh my gosh, it would have been destroying him. But despite all of those challenges, Noah never wavered from the calling that God had given him. And in 2 Peter 2, verse 5, it describes him as a herald of righteousness. So not only is he staying committed to what he's supposed to do, he's actually proclaiming people. He's saying, no, you got to believe. You got to repent. Salvation, like, uh, this is, you need to get on board with this. So he's not just continuing to do it. He's actually ministering to the people who are making fun of him. Of all the things we can learn from Noah, I think the one that is most important for us today as we live in America today is maybe having the courage and commitment to stand firm when culture is attacking us, calling us names, and testing our faith. Because we're feeling it tonight, guys. We're feeling it in the world. So did Noah. So how did he stay committed to God? How did Noah do this? We can learn from this, guys. 
Our first and arguably most important answer comes in verse eight, where we read, but Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. He found favor in the eyes of the Lord. The word favor there is translated as grace in some of the versions of the Bible. It means God's undeserved blessing. Interestingly enough, this is the first time that grace actually appears in the Bible. We've seen elements of God's grace previously, but here is where grace actually gets its name. The importance of this, guys, cannot be overlooked because this is a fundamental truth that we see throughout the Bible. Without grace from God, we have nothing. Ephesians 2.8, for it is by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not from yourselves, it is a gift of God, not by works that no man can boast. The foundation of Noah's steadfast perseverance to the mission that God has given him is actually a gift from God. God calls him to something and then God gifts him with what he needs. I mean, that's awesome, guys. That's, that's how God works. But without grace, Noah would have never been able to do it. This is fantastic news for us, guys. It's fantastic. You gotta get excited about this. I mean, if you're sitting here tonight and you have accepted Jesus Christ as your savior, then you've received grace just like Noah. You have that. You have the found favor in God's eyes. And that means that you have what it takes to be committed to whatever God is calling you to. You know what's ironic, guys, is I was really struggling this week with what to share. And I was still struggling last night. And I was writing and refining last night. And in fact, I was working on this very part. I just, the stuff that I just talked about, I just wrote last night about receiving God's favor. And as I was writing it, you know, I, I wanted to write it to encourage you guys to be like, hey, God's grace is with you. I, I want you guys to be encouraged. But as I wrote it, I sat there and I thought, Scott, are you believing what you're writing? Like, are you reading what you're writing and gonna go tell all these guys? Because truthfully in that moment, guys, I wanted to give up. I wanted to give up. I was afraid you guys won't get anything out of this talk. There's so many other things. I mean, guys are telling me, oh, talk about that, do this, do this, do that. And I'm like, oh, there's so many good things to talk about. What do I talk about? Add to that, um, I've had some things that have been really weighing on me at work. And there have been times these past few days that I, I wanted to give up. I, 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 like yesterday, I'm like, I'm gonna call Bill and be like, dude, I'm out. Uh, you, you figure it out, man. You get up there, I don't know, you got something. <laughs> you could have done it, you could have been all right. And something in that moment last night where I just wrote that last paragraph about God's grace said, dude, look at what you just wrote. Are you kidding me? It's not just for those men. It's for me too. It's for me too. And I said, do you believe this or not, Scott? And I'm here to say I believe it because in that moment, God gave me something. And, uh, and I don't know whether you will get anything out of this or not, but God gave me something. And, uh, and I know it's true because I experienced it 24 hours ago. God's grace hit me last night. And I hope, you know, it wasn't my power. It was the grace of God that kept me committed to pursuing this call that he's put on my life. So here's my question for you guys. Where are you wanting to give up on something that God's called you to tonight? Where are you wanting to give up on something he's called you to? Where is the devil lying to you by telling you you're not good enough and you just need to quit. Because that's the voice that I heard last night. You're not good enough. I don't know what that is for you tonight, but I know what it was for me last night. 
And in the midst of that moment, as I was working on this section of the lecture, I was reminded it's not about me and my strength. It is about God and his grace. If he called me to this work, then he's going to equip me to do it. And I pray that tomorrow, guys, I pray tomorrow, whatever comes your way, that you will have a renewed sense of joy and resolve, knowing that it is God's grace that will give you the strength to stand. Not your own, but God's grace. But that's not the only reason that Noah could stand with such commitment and courage. Yes, it started with his grace, but it grows from there. Hebrews chapter 11 is known as this hall of faith. And in no surprise, we see Noah there, right? It says in verse seven, by faith Noah, being warned by God concerning events yet unseen, in reverent fear constructed an ark for the saving of his household. Tucked within that verse are two more keys to Noah for us tonight. We read that Noah had faith and he had reverent fear. In verse 11, or in verse one of Hebrews 11, it says, faith is the assurance of things unseen, or the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. Faith moves us to confidently stand because we know who God is. We believe what he says and we know he has the power to do it. The power to keep all his promises and the power to do everything that he asks us to do. Faith. Reverent fear, often misunderstood, right? This doesn't mean that Noah was afraid of God the way that we think of being afraid of something. When the Bible talks about the fear of God, it means a reverent respect and acknowledgement of who God is, of who he is. It means there's a deep knowledge and a recognition of God's power and his authority. It's believing that God is who he says he is and realizing that he is holy and righteous and we are not. That's reverent fear. One of the problems we face today is that we fear the wrong things, guys. We have greater fear of losing our comfort and our status than we do of letting down God. Noah didn't care how much it cost him and what other people said. His reverent fear of God drove him to never waver from what God had called him to do. Men, where are you letting fear prevent you from committing to what God has called you to tonight? Where's fear holding you back? And then think about it a little deeper. Go a little deeper. What's that specific fear? Because I think if you start to look at where you're saying no to things of God, a lot of times it's going to come back to one fear. There's like one thing that you're wrestling with and it keeps pushing you to say no. So dig a little deeper, examine, find out what that fear is. Second Timothy 1.7, God did not give us a spirit of fear, but of power, of love, and of self-discipline. The final source of Noah's strength I want us to look at tonight is found in, in Genesis 6, 9, where we read that similar to Enoch, Noah walked with God. He walked with God. To help us think about walking with God, I want you to think about physically walking with another person. In order to walk with, some, with someone, what has to happen? You have to get in the same rhythm, the same pace. You gotta have the same stride. My wife, Jenny, is five foot two. I'm six one. I walk fast. My wife doesn't. When I go for a walk with Jenny, I have to intentionally slow down my pace and shorten my stride so that we can truly communicate and connect. If I don't get in stride with her, what happens? Well, I get ahead of her, and instead of enjoying a pleasant walk together, you know what happens? 
we get frustrated and suddenly we become disconnected and she gets mad at me and she gets frustrated and she's like, why are you walking so fast? And if I continued at my own pace, you know what would happen? I'd lose connection. I'd lose connection with her altogether. We're not even walking together anymore. So to walk with God, we have to get in stride with God. God doesn't need to get in stride with us, guys. That's not how this thing works. We need to get in stride with God. Some of you wonder why you can't experience intimacy with God, but you rarely make time for devotions. You throw up a couple of quick prayers when things aren't going well. You come to church on occasion. You listen to music and podcasts that have nothing to do with God. You watch TV shows full of violent swearing and sex. And the friends you hang out with only know how to have a good time when there's alcohol involved. I hate to say it, guys, but it's no wonder you don't feel close to God. That's not his stride. Guys, to walk with God, you have to get in stride with God. What does that look like? We must have moments of solitude, reading the Bible and praying, just you and him. Just you and him. You have to listen to music that actually helps you worship and think about the awe and majesty of God. You have to serve others and stop thinking about yourself. You have to fill your mind with things that draw you to God. You need friends who will listen to you and love you and then point you to truth. You need a day of Sabbath rest. And you need to slow down and give him the best hour of the day, not give him the leftovers at the end of it. So what th- one thing will you do this week to slow down so you can walk intimately with God? And if you want a stretch challenge, make this Sunday a true Sabbath. I've been working on this, and guys, I don't have this figured out yet. This is still a goal of mine. And maybe this Sunday will be it. Maybe this Sunday. Since I'm challenging you guys, I should probably challenge myself. Um, you know, Make it a true Sabbath, right? A day dedicated to worship and rest and see how it impacts your walk with God the week ahead. There's one more thing I want us to consider here, guys. As I put this together, I kept asking myself, what is required for the perseverance and commitment of Noah? What does it, stay to say, what does it take to stay so committed? And while I do believe that grace and faith and reverent fear and a walk with God are foundational, I want us to consider another element, and that is the involvement of community. Consider this. When you do the math, Methuselah died the same year of the flood, and Noah's father Lamech died just a couple years prior to the flood. I have no idea, and please don't post this as some new interpretation of Scripture, all right? I just wonder, maybe Noah wasn't alone in his walk with the Lord. Maybe he wasn't alone. Maybe his grandfather and his dad and others from their family were helping Noah and encouraging him and supporting him and praying for him. Pretty cool thought, isn't it? Pretty cool thought. As a kid who grew up on a farm in Iowa, I will tell you some of the sweetest memories I have. Some of the best memories I have are working with my dad and my uncles out on the farm. Men, if you ever have the chance to work with your son, do it. It's fantastic. It's fantastic. So we know Noah and his wife and the three sons and their wives were spared in the flood, and we know the world was filled with violence and evil, but we don't know whether they were the only believers or not. And based on the genealogy of Genesis 5, I think an argument could be made that he wasn't alone. Whatever the case, I know this. I'm not alone tonight. 
you're not alone tonight. Men, look around this room. It's 200 some odd guys who gave up a Tuesday night to come here and study the Bible, to talk about Jesus and to build community. Don't feel alone. We're not alone, guys. I can't help but wonder what would happen if we, as a community of men, started to encourage each other to stand up against culture, to stand firm in our faith, and got started building whatever ark God was calling us to build. We're all sitting here tonight because Bill had the courage to build an ark, and it's called Heart of a Man. And because of it, men's lives, my life has changed. But I know if Bill got up here right now, he'd say he didn't do it alone. It's not just Bill that built this. He had a vision, he was committed, but he did it in community. Research shows that when you stand at the bottom of a hill, that hill looks 30% less steep if there's one friend standing next to you than if you were by yourself. One friend, that's the power of a friend in community. Brothers, if we started to celebrate a guy choosing to make less money so he could, so he could be home with his kids more, as much as we celebrate a guy who got a promotion and bought a new car, what would the world look like? What if we celebrated a family choosing to limit their lifestyle because they wanted one of the parents to stay home to raise their children? What if we celebrated choosing to make your week of vacation a service project instead of at a resort in Cabo, which is where I was two weeks ago when I was reading and starting to prepare this lecture? So I'm not saying there's anything wrong with a new car, making money, both spouses working, or taking a vacation. Don't, don't mishear me, okay, guys? I'm not saying that. But here's my point. It's a lot easier for us to make hard choices and live differently than the world when we are part of a community that's doing it together. I just can't get this thought out of my mind. What if we started to encourage and make changes and did it together? We didn't, wouldn't feel like we're on an island. Like, Man, if everybody was doing that, like that would be so much easier. Consider this uh, comparison from Genesis 4, 5, and 6 to Acts 2. Listen to this in Acts 2. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common, and they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing to those in need. And day by day, attending to the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. There's times, man, I wish I lived in the church of Acts 2 in that time. I think it would have been pretty darn cool. So what would happen if we as a community of men and other communities of believers that you're a part of started living on mission like Noah lived on mission? What if you committed to that thing that God has been putting on your heart that you have been too afraid, too busy, or just too comfortable to start? Again, guys, I've said this a couple of times, but I just really wrestled with what to share tonight because I don't want to come across as someone who's living on so much on mission that I've got this figured out and I'm ready to die tomorrow and building my ark. I'm not. That's why this convicted me so much because I want to do better. The reality is um, I want to be there and I think you guys want to be there. 
I don't know what God would have done if I had moved to Africa back in 2011. I don't. I don't know what God is doing with me or hopefully is going to do through me for whatever days I have left. But I do know that someday I'm going to die. Someday I'm going to stand before God and give an account of my life. I know I will be declared righteous. I know that. I'll be declared righteous because I believe in Jesus and what he's done on the cross. I want to... Honestly, guys, I, I want to be more than just righteous. And I don't mean that proudly, but I want to run into heaven, man. I want to run into heaven, right? I want to run into heaven, and I want to stay fully committed to whatever God has called me to. It may not be an ark, and that's okay. I just want to have the courage to do whatever he calls me to. One final thought, guys. I'll let you go. In preparation for tonight, I came across a devotional by Oswald Chambers, and it said this. The truest test of a person's spiritual life and character is not what he does in the extraordinary moments of life, but in how he lives every day when there is nothing extraordinary happening and no one is watching. Obedience in the moment gives us the ability to be courageous and prepared in the extraordinary. None of us may be the next Noah, but I challenge us to be obedient in the ordinary just in case there's an opportunity to build an ark. Will you pray with me? Father God, thank you. Thanks for Noah. Thanks for this example of a godly man who stood firm in the face of adversity and culture that was, that was just coming at him. And Lord, we live in a world where we feel that now. And so God, I pray that each man in this room would have the courage and the commitment, the resolve that they would feel your grace and your power, Father God, tonight, tomorrow. I pray that they would live in faith, that they would have reverent fear, that I would have reverent fear of who you are, and that we would walk with you, God, in intimacy, and then that we as a community would come around each other to support and encourage each other so that we can stay committed to the calling and the assignment that you've given us, God. By your power alone, we can't do it, God, but you've given us that power and I pray these men may feel it tomorrow, tonight, tomorrow, whenever, Lord. Just help us. Lord, we love you. We thank you. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. <laughs>